how can I know that I'm loved by God? That's the question that we are wrapping up this series with. Our series has been a a look at Romans 8, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8. It's smack dab in the middle of the book, dealing with this understanding of how it is that we are saved in God's view of the world. So we've titled this series, Saved, Sealed, and Delivered, kind of riffing off of Stevie Wonder's famous album. And so, I mean, what, what better thing to do to close this series than to, maybe just listen to a a little bit of Stevie here. I I want you to listen closely though. I'm not asking you to sing along. This isn't a worship song. Don't send me emails, Uh, but just just follow along with me. Ready? Uh, I want you to hear this. Ready? This is how Stevie kind of starts the song. He's, He's begging for this woman's love that he loves. Look, I went and stayed too long. I'm wondering if your love's still strong. Basically saying, uh, I'm wondering, are you, are you fed up with me? Are you, are you just sick of me at this point? Keep listening. Just one more, one more little line here. You see, Stevie's kind of fickle. He left. He's back. Oh, and now maybe he's got a little bit of shame. He's crying. Here I am. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. You see, what Stevie is saying is not something new about love. Stevie is actually kind of echoing our heart's cry, I think, even to God, as the the famous hymnist Richard Richardson, uh, I believe I said that name right, uh, wrote in his famous hymn, Come Thou, oh, Robert Robinson, I was close, wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it with thy spirit from above. You see, we're, we're prone to wander and we can't help but, but wonder. If, if I wander, will God wander in return? Will God be sick of my wandering? And so we, we, we ask this question. We ask, can you deal with my brokenness? In fact, Stevie goes on a little bit later and writes, I've done a lot of foolish things that I really didn't mean. I could be a broken man, but, but here I am, signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. If you still want me, he's saying, listen, I, listen, I'm, I'm making myself lovable. I'm, I'm putting myself in a, a special box just for you. Will you love me? How can I know that, that, that you, that you love me? Tonight, we're ending our series through Romans 8, looking at Romans 8, 29 to 39. If you have a Bible, open it up. That's where we're going to be focusing our attention tonight, where we, I, I think, that we find the answer to our heart's question. How can I know that God loves me? You see, when when bad things happen, when we suffer, we might wonder, why is this happening? Does Does God not love me? When we are overcome with doubt or temptations begin to reorder our loves and desires, we we can't help but, but ask, does God still love me? Can he love someone like me? When we make mistakes or do evil and selfish things, lie, cheat, ignore injustice, steal, hate our brothers and sisters, we ask, how can a good God, how can a holy God really feel love toward me? This question of how can I know God's love me has been asked in a variety of different ways, perhaps probably one of the most famous ways that it's been asked is, how can I know that I am saved? 
And that question uh, is, is an interesting one because typically what, what it's asking is, how can I know that I'm, I'm saved from hell? How can I know I'm not going to hell? Now, now here, listen, I'm, I'm here before you tonight uh, as a Christian pastor and as Christians, uh, we believe that the Bible is the foundation for everything that we believe. And, and the Bible has a word uh, to kind of describe where we are going if we are outside of Christ, if we don't know Christ, if we choose to live for our own kingdom instead of God's kingdom. And that word uh, in the New Testament is often called hell. You see, we, we believe in the Christian faith that if God is just, then we must be punished for our unjust doings, whether they are toward other people or toward him. And Romans earlier in this letter says, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin the punishment for sin is death. Again, hell is sometimes used to, to describe that death, though there are a number of names and adjectives used to describe that death in the Bible. But perhaps we might do, do best tonight to understand hell as the presence of God primarily through justice in wrath, whereas heaven is the presence of God primarily through his glory in love. So our question tonight focuses on how can we know that God's love is directed at us here on earth and will be present with us in heaven, in his glory, in love. So we got to figure this out. <laughs> how, how can we know that, that God loves us? I think Perhaps to, to really unpack that, we should ask two questions. First, what can I do to cause God's love? And then second, what can be done to stop God's love? These are the essential questions, I think, for, for understanding if God loves us. How does love happen and how can love be stopped? I think if we, if we understand the answers to, to these two questions, then we can be certain about whether or not God loves us. So let's, let's deal with the first one first. What can I do to cause God's love? If you can, open your Bibles to Romans 8. Romans 8, we're looking at verses 29 to 30. Here's where Paul starts. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, as we, we hop into this text, I want you to, to notice a few things that are, are happening here. You see, Paul is kind of showering uh, the entirety of this section with, uh, with, with family language. Notice, he, he says the, the word son. He talks about being the firstborn. He talks about brothers. And, and these, are, these are important things for us to, to understand. When he's saying, he's saying, listen, love is found when we are adopted into a family. You see, being adopted into God's family is how it is that we were saved. We were saved 
in his son, in the image of his son. That is when we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that is how we come into this family. He is the firstborn. Again, another family word. Not that Jesus is the first thing created. No, Jesus is not created. He has always been God, but rather he is the firstborn of the dead. When he raised from the dead, he signaled that we too, if we are in him, would also come to new life. He is the firstborn. And then we are brothers. And we talked about this a few weeks ago as well, because that can be confusing language. You see, Paul calls us brothers, saying that we are adopted as sons. And when he says this, he's, he's speaking to men and women in a patriarchal society where women were treated as much less. They did not gain as much of the inheritance. They did not gain everything that a son would get. And so when Paul says that we are brothers, what we are sons, he is not, uh, he is not upholding the patriarchy. Rather, he is overthrowing it. You see, this is the glory of what it means to be a part of this family. We are loved and welcomed by God. Christianity is about being welcomed into God's loving family and welcomed as a full-fledged family member with all the benefits of the highest ranking member of that family. But how does this happen? You see, this is what we're getting into a little bit more deeply in this text. This text, Romans 8, 29 to 30, has sometimes been called the great chain of salvation. And you can see that as certain words will repeat over and over again. Uh, for example, we see that God foreknew, and those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. I want us to look at these words a little bit more closely so that we can see the, the glory that's behind them. You see, first, we get this word, for new. You see, it, it, it's in that word that we actually get the love of this passage. Oftentimes, I think when we think about what it means to know something, uh, we, we tend to think in a very technical sense, right? I imagine some of you who are watching have degrees in certain things or have studied certain subjects or watched certain documentaries. And so you know something, you know about something, but that's not the way that love is used in the Bible. That's not the way the word know is used in the Bible. Forgive me. You see, know is actually typically used to convey love and care. For example, later you can look this up, but write down Amos 3.2. In Amos 3.2, it's one of the prophets in the Older Testament. Uh, Yahweh says of Israel that she was the only people out of the families of the earth that he knew. And it's not that God didn't know about the Greeks, that he needed to do research uh, about the Hittites, or that he had never heard of the Potawatomi tribes of the Midwest. No, no, no. That, that's, that's, that's not what's going on. Rather, he, he loved Israel. He didn't love and care for, for any other nation in any other way. And the word here that we see that's so interesting is, look at that. I'd encourage you to circle that if you can, this word for. It's the prefix of the word. He foreknew. That is before before they even came into being, before you were even born, if you are in Christ, if you have believed on him, if you have called out to Jesus as Savior, before you were even a thought in your parents' mind, he knew you. He cared for you. He loved you. This isn't a new concept to Paul. He said the same thing in Ephesians 1.4. In Ephesians 1.4, it said, he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world. What does this mean? It means when it comes to your salvation, God started it. Not you. You did not make yourself lovable. God chose to love you and it had nothing to do with you. Let's keep going. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Let's look at that word predestined. Again, you have to notice that, that prefix, that word pre, we are predestined. You see, God's loving initiative is located in eternity past. He, he predetermined your final destination. You see, it's not just that he foresaw us and loved us and felt pity on us, but that he said, I'm not going to leave them that way. He said, I'm going to conform them to the image of my son and I will highlight his supremacy by exalting their dignity. I will raise them to be more like him. And as they are more like him, he will be exalted as supreme. You see, what, what this means is that, that this isn't fire insurance for half-hearted religious participants. It's not a license for sinful self-indulgence. Rather, it's an encouragement for personal transformation that we were predestined. He chose us in him. Look at Ephesians 1.4 again in a little bit broader of a context. It says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Friends, it's eternity past. It has nothing to do with you. This is where your salvation started. And then Paul's going to transition now from eternity past right into the present. Keep looking back at that text with me, Romans 8. You're going to see that now he talks about those who are predestined are called. No prefix, no, no eternity past here. Rather, Paul is, is shifting to the present, to where we are called into salvation. And when you think about being called into salvation, we typically think of this uh, in, the, in the very present way uh, as the evangelistic call that perhaps you experienced. Maybe someone told you about Christ, or maybe you were reading God's word. Some have had dreams or visions or other types of things. And, but, but for those who, who come to faith, typically by someone sharing you might think of that as the, the main call. It's the evangelistic call. And truly through this, God does bring people to himself. As Christians, we are called to, to go out and be calling others to repentance, calling others to, to leave the kingdom of this world and turn to the kingdom of God. But there's another call that's happening here. You see, there's an evangelistic call, but there's also an effectual call. All throughout the book of Romans, we see that we are dead in our sins. Earlier in the book, Paul quotes Isaiah saying, none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. We're dead. And so if we can't seek after God, we need to be awoken to life. You see, this is the good news of the gospel. The Holy Spirit called our hearts so that we might see reality as it is. I, I like to think of a hymn that I sang years ago when I traveled with a choir uh, called, I Sought the Lord. In it, the, the hymnist writes, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him 
seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. You see, it's not that I first called him father, but that he called me son. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. You see, God's call enables those who hear to believe. And those who believe are justified by faith. This is more than just a forgiveness or a removal of sin. It's a declaration that we are righteous because we are in Christ who is righteous. All of his righteousness has been granted to us as as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, when you hear that language of being glorified, it might be a little bit confusing because glorification is typically understood, uh, if you've been around a Christian context, it's kind of the final stage of salvation, right? Uh, glorification will, will typically say, this is the day when, uh, when my body will no longer be corrupted, when, si- uh, when sin will no longer tempt me, uh, when I'm no longer be in danger of cancer or disease or aging. And so you, you wonder, how is it that Paul can put glorified in the, in the past tense? How can he say this is mine when my world clearly all around me is seeing corruption and I am feeling constant corruption? Well, what Paul is saying, when he talks about that idea of being predestined and all these things, he's putting it all together and saying, friends, if you are in Christ, it's as good as yours. Nothing can take it away. It's sealed, saved, sealed, and you will be delivered. In fact, you already are delivered, as we talked a few weeks ago. How, uh, how Paul says in another letter that we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Friends, this is the glory of glorification. This is the glory of the gospel for you. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. So here's the question. How can I get God to love me? What can make me lovable to God? What can I do to to cause God's love? Here's the answer that Paul gives. Nothing. We can do nothing to cause God's love. You can't make your sinful self lovable. God is God over God's love. He does it. He chose to love you. I mean, note here, uh, all of the those that are in this passage, those he foreknew, those he predestined, those whom he called, those whom he justified. Friends, all of the those in this sections do nothing. (laughs) They are passive to everything that God is doing on behalf of them and for them. That's the glory of the gospel. You see, uh, if salvation is about thinking— then the moment I doubt it, I'm lost. If salvation is about doing, the moment that I stop doing, the moment that I forget, the moment I fail, I'm lost. If salvation is about feeling, the moment I no longer feel it, I'm lost. But 
If salvation is about God's infinite, unchanging love, then no matter how you fill in that blank, no matter what you do, you can know that you are secure. What does this mean? It means you can stop trying to prove yourself. You can be free from this this guilt of being unworthy of Jesus. Friends, you you can rest and take joy in the gift. One of the ways Jesus talks about how one enters the kingdom uh, throughout the gospels, he says to enter the kingdom, you must enter like a child. Now, those of you who have children have probably given gifts to your children, uh, to your children. My daughter, my toddler loves when, when the doorbell rings because she regularly thinks that it's a package to deliver a gift. Nine times out of 10, it's not, maybe even less. Uh, but when it is, she gets really excited. She starts screaming, it's a gift, it's a gift. And when she gets the gift, when she gets the package, the first thing she wants to do is open it when we tell her it's a gift. And then she wants to play that gift with us. And she wants to enjoy that gift with us. And never does she say, so what do I owe you? How do I pay you back, dad? And if she did, well, one, I'd be very impressed that a toddler thought all that through. But also I'd be kind of saddened because that's not why I give my daughter a gift. It's because I love her. Friends, salvation, God says, is a gift that he gives, that he does. It's not about you. You did nothing. So what can cause God's love? What can I do to cause God's love? Nothing. Here's the next question, though. And this perhaps may be the question that we need to get a little bit deeper into. What can be done to stop God's love. Another way of asking this is, can anything stand in the way of God's love? What's interesting about Paul, unlike many uh, of different religions and faiths, and even sometimes in the Christian faith, uh, Paul doesn't set up this religion and then say, okay, leave it alone. Don't mess with it. Don't ask questions. He doesn't say, okay, Christianity is a very vulnerable and flimsy game of Jenga. So, so be careful. No, 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 no. Paul says, okay, with all of this being said, let's see how many hits it can take. Let's see how many punches we could throw at the gospel and still watch it stand. That's how confident Paul is. He's going to ask some some hard questions of the faith. And look at them with me here. Romans 8, 31 to, to 39. Here's the first question he throws out in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I imagine some who are hearing that, they're like, well, who can be against us, Paul? It seems like everyone can be against Christians. If, if God is for us, it seems like everyone is against us. Look at the history of Israel. Look at the history of the church now. Being a follower of Christ brings persecution in countries all around the world. It brings ridicule in a variety of settings. Who can be against us seems kind of a, a poor question unless we look a little bit closer. You see, Paul isn't saying that if you're one of God's people, that you'll have no enemies. Rather, he's saying, if you have God as your ally, your enemies don't matter. If you are a follower of Christ, we see in scripture that the world, the flesh, and the devil are determined to prevent you, to prevent you from a safe arrival in heaven, or at the very least, to harass you on your way there. 
But the good news of Romans 8 is that we will defy them. You see, some people hate the idea of having enemies, right? We, we freak out about, ooh, I don't, I don't want anyone to, to be against me. But, but the overarching storyline of the Bible says that everybody has somebody against them. Everyone has someone against them because there is a spiritual war that is raging above the reality that we see with our bare eyes. Either you have God against you and the demonic realm celebrating your capture, or God is for you. And the rest of the world, the flesh and the devil are, are against you. There, there is no neutral. There is no, no man's land when it comes to the spiritual war that is raging above us. And perhaps you get a little freaked out about that. What do you mean? God is against me. Well, friends, to be more accurate, all of us outside of Christ are actually against God. That's how the Bible talks. It says that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. You see, we, each of us has chosen our kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And that's the glory of the gospel. That's the gift of the gospel that we were not worthy. We were not clean. We were not good. We were not loving. We did not ingratiate ourselves to God. Rather, he chose to no longer be against us, but because of his love, he adopted us in and loved us into the family. He loved us into love. That's the, the good news of this text. Perhaps one of the most uh, frightening statements in the Bible is when God would say that I am against you. It occurs many times in the Bible. God will often use it in the prophets when talking about Egypt or Nineveh or different uh, countries, but sometimes he even used it against his own people. He would say it to Israel when they were ignoring injustice. He would say it to Israel when they were being led by, by false prophets. But Romans 8, 31 tells us that in our new covenant, things are different because God is foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified us. The powers of hell may set themselves against us, but they can never prevail since God is always on our side. See, here's the good word for you today. Paul says, you want to ask this hard question, who is against us? It doesn't matter because God sticks up for us. Here's the second question he asks, verse 32. Look at that one. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, if we, if we only read the second half of that, of that question, how will he not give us all things? We, we might get frustrated, right? You might be like, Paul... Well, there are a lot of things that I need, a lot of things that I want, and I don't get those things, but we need to read this question in context. Paul's argument is from the greater to the lesser. If God has already given us the, the greatest gift he could give, his own son, why would we question whether or not he will give us everything in the end? You see, the question is more about God's stinginess. Is he stingy with his love? <laughs> not at all. Uh, <laughs> God gave him up for us. 
Now that's an interesting phrase. God gave him up for us. It's a, it's a word that's actually used in all of the gospels, uh, gave him up. It's a word that's used to describe Judas, to describe the priests, and to describe Pilate, who handed Jesus over to death. But interestingly, one author, a guy named Octavius Winslow, was correct when he, write, when he wrote, uh, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. You see, if God gave the loving gift of his son, there is no portion of his love that he will hold back from his people. God provides for us. Next question, verses 33 to 34. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If we paraphrase the question, we might say, can my past stop his love? Now that question may be written exactly for our day, right? I mean, we, we currently live in what some people are calling uh, a cancel culture. It happens on the right and it happens on the political left. The political right boycotts a company that speaks out on a political issue, and then the political left boycotts someone who doesn't speak out on a political issue. Foolish tweets, posts, and likes resurface from years past, and all of a sudden someone's job is lost, someone's company is gone, and a name that was once unknown brings up a plethora of results on Google. So the question we might ask is, can cancel culture cancel God's love? No, Paul says. He justified. Christ died for that sin. You see, it doesn't mean that there are no earthly consequences. You may pay uh, the cultural or economic price for your past. But if you are in Christ, you will pay nothing of your sin to God. Christ died for that. You are free. You cannot be canceled in Christ. When I was in college, I participated for a little bit in a prison ministry. Uh, and I'll never forget what, what one of the gentlemen who was leading the prison ministry said to, to someone who was, who was residing at that, that prison. He, he said when sharing the gospel with him, that if you put your faith in Christ, you can be more free within these walls than anyone who walks freely outside of them. No charge will stick. If you are in Christ, Sorry, your case you. is closed. God justifies us. Here's that last question. What can separate me from his love? Look at verse 35 with me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? You see, Paul looks around and, and sees what we see. All the enemies of our happiness in Christ. And he, he defied them to, to tear us from the loving grip of Christ. So what would happen to to prove to Christ, no, to prove that Christ no longer loves us, that he has abandoned us. Paul throws out some, some possibilities here. Stress, opposition, 
danger, unmet needs, violence. What is that? It's life. That's, that's life for Christians. And Paul doesn't deny it or even minimize it. In fact, he draws upon Psalm 44 to remind us how brutal life can be, saying, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Basically saying, listen, the world is a big, giant slaughterhouse. What a picture. It's not pretty, but it matches the facts. Because God's people suffer, they, they can't always make sense of it. God's people seek to live for him, to, to do his will. And yet, for your sake, because of God, not in spite of him, but because of him, they suffer. So if we face suffering of this, of this magnitude, what, what's the point? What's the difference between our suffering and everyone else's suffering if we're just going to suffer by being in Christ? Well, it's the love. Keep reading with me. No, that won't separate us from the love. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you see this? Paul wants us to, to see our enemies swirling around us. He wants to imagine the wor- he wants us to imagine the, the worst case scenario to see if God's love remains credible even then. We may get bloodied, but still God's love will not leave us. God's love will not allow our, our faith to die because his love is the very foundation and driver of our faith. We get tired, we cry, we agonize. But as we lie bloodied on the ground, we don't cry out in vain. We get up and trust God, trusting that he is still working for our good. Friends, life can be mean. It can be hard to bear, but real life does not mean that God no longer cares. In it all, we move forward, not as victims, but as victors, because everything happening to us, while not necessarily good in itself, is working for our good and is guided by God's love. What can be done to stop God's love? Nothing. You see, the the four questions Paul asks are for a world that that seeks to destabilize us. But in them, we can make four stabilizing declarations. God sticks up for us, so we should never feel opposed by God. God provides for us, so we should never feel deprived by God. God justifies us, so we should never feel condemned by God. And God loves us, so we should never be feel abandoned by him. What can be done to, to stop God's love? Nothing. Nothing at all can stop the love of God. So maybe you don't feel loved by God right now. God never promised that you would never be separated 
from our earthly comforts. God never promised that, that life would be fair. So look for God's love where he has actually promised it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Years ago, I was working as a captain for a large catering company here in Chicago. And I remember doing a, a kind of unconventional wedding. Uh, this couple wanted to kind of undo all of the, the typical wedding norms. And at times it was a really fun wedding. But one thing they decided to do kind of threw everyone off. I think it, it left a bad taste in pretty much everyone's mouth. You see, they decided to, to do the normal wedding vows, but kind of a parody of them. And so when it came time to say, until death do us part, they said, until we do part. You see, based on the rest of the vows, it was clear that by this, what they meant was that they understood all marriages don't last. And so they, they might get sick of each other. And at that point, they'll say they had a good run. But in that scenario, that doesn't really feel like love. Rather, marriage seems to be nothing more than a better tax arrangement. This is not what marriage is supposed to be because marriage is a picture of the greatest love that, that ever was and ever will be in the gospel. And this is not what the gospel is, thank God. God doesn't get sick of us. Nothing can tear us away from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing in all creation. That means anything outside of us or anything inside of us. You see, the gospel is love until death do you part with the essential good news that death is no more. Nothing can tear you away from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Are you a follower of Christ tonight? Rest today in his love, knowing that you could never make yourself lovable. He saved, sealed, and delivered you. You're his. Do you feel God's call on your heart this evening? Do you hear his offer of unstoppable and unconditional love? Respond. Respond tonight by calling out to Christ in faith. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, we thank you for the goodness that you have shown to us. We thank you for the unconditional love that you have granted your people. Now help us, Lord, to render in our hearts your love, not as our resume, but as your good gift. Give us peace and rest so that we might know the security of your love. For those who don't know you tonight, Father, work in their hearts. Awaken them to life and reality as it is. Seal them and deliver them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.